0: Well good morning, thanks Jonathan. My name is Hafa, I'm one of the elders here. Our lead pastor is in a much needed sabbatical this summer and in the meantime uh, the elders are cycling through um, teaching through the book of Ephesians. Today we're gonna be looking at Ephesians four and while you turn there, um, I kind of wanted to clear up, clear up um, and add clarity to a topic of confusion something that's, you know, can, can be confusing, has been confusing, people have asked a lot of questions, and maybe something that's plagued the church. Um, just want to clear up, how do you pronounce my name? What is my name? Um, originally from Brazil, my, uh, in Portuguese, my name is Rafael. Hafa, for short. Now, I understand that there's Spanish version, Rafael, Rafa, Is an English version, Raphael or Rafa. That said, as an Enneagram number nine, I am not going to correct you. I am not gonna tell you how to say my name. Call me Jimmy, George, whatever, I will answer you. This is the last to speak of it, that's my name. Good morning, so Ephesians four. (laughs) Um, If you are able, please stand with me as we read the word of God. We're going to read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. It says this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we submit to your word May we be shaped by what you're saying here in Ephesians 4, um, maintaining and attaining unity, what that looks like, what it means for us. Remind us of who we are. Remind us of our identity in you. Lord, be here and present, honored and glorified in all that we do. We love you and praise this in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all can sit down. All right, so as I said, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. Um, And in order to really understand a very pivotal therefore in the beginning of Ephesians 4, we kind of have to go back and recap what we have talked about thus far Uh, so we can really understand the depth of what is here in this one specific word. Because in this letter, we find a grand picture of who God is, and we also have a very everyday, earthy reality of what we do. All right, so we're gonna do a quick recap Think of it like a netflix recap without the skip button on here sorry about that not really sorry so we're going to start in ephesians 1 verses 3 to 7 because we have a calling we have an identity this is who we are in christ blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Clean, that's what we are. In love, he predestined us for adoption. We're in the family. Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. There is worship in us. We will praise God, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him we have redemption. We're redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. There's a lot in our identity, and that's our identity in Christ. That's who we are. We're going to skip to Ephesians 2, 22, where he says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are a dwelling place. We're not just a dwelling place. Ephesians 3.19 says in the middle of his prayer, Paul says that to know that love of Christ surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Not only are we a dwelling place, we have fullness of God filling us. That's who we are. And in the coming ages, Ephesians 2, 7 says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. That's what we have coming. This is who we are. Our identity, our calling. How do we get there? Well, we have been called. I love Ephesians 2, 5. I think Jonathan did a phenomenal job talking about how God made us alive. Ephesians 2, 4-5 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We have been called. We have been made alive. That's what being called is. I'd like to offer an analogy to show you what I mean. We're going to go to the Gospel of John. John 11. Jesus has been told that his friend Lazarus has died. After going... Speaking with folks there, this is what he says. John 11, verse 43 to 44. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out. Now, dead man can't hear. Dead man can't obey. But this is exactly the calling. This is exactly the act of calling where God raises spiritually dead people to life as he did Lazarus. He raises dead people to life and faith through the gospel. We have been called, come out of your spiritual grave into this identity, into this calling, being filled with him, dwelling place for him. And there's unity in that calling. And called into a calling where there's unity. Again, in Ephesians 2 Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh a dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit. There is unity. It's very clear that we have talked about unity. It's very clear that we talked about our identity, our calling. It's very clear that we have been called. We have been made alive. We have been called into a calling. Therefore, therefore walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's the therefore is therefore. It's a shift in Paul's argument from talking about what God has done for us to what God is doing through us. What has come before is going to govern and shape and empower what comes now, the doing. We can't teach the doing of Christianity without the foundational doctrine. If you just do without the first three chapters of Ephesians, that's hypocrisy. We just do based on our strength, on our wisdom, on what we think is best, but we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And I love the the picture of walking. It occurs eight times. Paul talks about walking eight times in Ephesians and several more times in all his letters. It's his favorite word, actually, to talk about the everyday, ordinary Christian life. It's a very simple, ordinary, one step at a time, just living one day at a time By faith in God. Just walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So now we ask the question is that walking, is that every day, is that living transformed by what we've been called from, the way we've been called, come out, or what we're called to? We are in Christ, a dwelling place filled by God. and I would say Paul would answer that question with a yes. We are transformed. Our walking is transformed by being called and by the calling. You have been called into a calling. You have a new person. You are a new person. So walk worthily of that. Walk in a manner worthy of that. And I'll be honest with you, when I came across that phrase, walk in a manner worthy, I had to take a step back and understand, what is that saying? Because I I can see the temptation of saying, I deserve this calling. I deserve to be called. I deserve to be this. So I'm going to walk because I'm worthy, right? No. This word, walk in the manner worthy of, worthily, in order to understand, um, I would like to introduce the Greek word for that. Um, It's okay. We can do this together. Blueletterbible.com is a phenomenal resource that shows you things like this. Um, So the the word manner worthy of is this word axios in parentheses there. It could be translated suitably. It could be translated fitting, appropriate, what is proper to your calling. Right? I think we have to understand this. And in, in, in my child, who is three years old, doesn't quite get this yet. Because she asks me every time, Daddy, is this good or bad? Yes or no? Like, well, what's fitting and what's appropriate? And I explain to her, it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Good or bad? Yes or no? It's like, okay, you'll get there one day. But we have to get past that. We have to get past yes or no, good and bad, do this, don't do this. We have to walk in a manner that is appropriate to being called, to being made alive, and appropriate to the calling of who we are in Christ. So, what are some of the descriptions of the marks of this walking, right? Paul says uh, in verse 2 walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So this walking, filled with humility, filled with gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in unity. So when we come across lists like this, we have to think to ourselves, how, how do these kind of fit together, right? Like, Why is it a list and why is it kind of structured in this way? Okay, let's take each part at a time. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. All right, humility and gentleness. I propose that humility is a disposition of the heart, a fundamental disposition of the heart that gives rise to and produces gentleness. Can't be gentle without humility. Similarly, patience is foundational to bear with one another. You can't bear with one another if you don't have patience. There's not a grumbling of, I just tolerate this because it's what I'm called to do. No, it comes out of an overflow of patience. And furthermore, I would even say that the humility, gentleness piece is foundational to the patience, which is foundational to bearing with one another, meaning humility is foundational, foundational to this walk. We're gonna look very quickly at Philippians 2, a parallel passage where Paul's having very similar words, very similar idea, arguing the same thing. And you see what I mean here in a second. Complete my joy by being made of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind pretty clear that unity is what he's arguing for here. He goes on, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in, there it is, humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility gives rise to reckoning others as people to be served, not people to be used. So humility gives rise to gentleness, which gives rise to patience, gives rise to bearing with one another which gives rise to unity. And so this walking in a manner worthy of your calling I think Paul is going to take the rest of the book of Ephesians to unpack what that looks like. What does it mean to walk? Right? God has done these things for us, therefore walk and let me show you what that looks like. Let me show you what it looks like to to appropriately walk in that Way. And his very first way to do that is by calling us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So maintain. Maintain unity. We don't create this unity, we don't conjure it up, we keep it. It's created by God, we just simply maintain it. How do we maintain it? Great question. Thank you for asking. There are three, maybe four different ways to answer that question fully. First, we looked at the therefore. God has done these things, therefore, maintain, because that's who you are, your identity. Secondly, I think we can look at what the definition of unity of the Spirit is. And we can also look at um, the cost of that unity. So we already looked at the therefore. So, what is unity of the Spirit? I'll try to go very quickly through this. I think it means three things. It means, I think it means it was created by the Spirit. Ephesians two eighteen says this: "For through him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father." So the Spirit is who creates the possibility that there's even access and connection to Christ and the Father at all. So this unity is created by the Spirit. It's also consisting in the Spirit. Ephesians 2.22 says, In him you also have, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God inhabits his people by the Spirit. So he create this unity is created by the Spirit, is consistent in the Spirit, and it is preserved by the Spirit, it is maintained in the Spirit. Wait a second, I thought we were going to maintain it. But, as you may know, Christianity is built on that therefore. We can't do anything apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the Spirit. So our maintaining is dependent on the Spirit's preservation of that unity. And we're gonna to have to go outside of Ephesians really quickly to, to see what I mean. Galatians 5, to 23, Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit that abides in us, the dwelling place of God, the fullness of that is this. Love, we saw that in Ephesians 4. Joy, peace, patience, we saw that in Ephesians 4. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, we also saw that. And self-control. So the overflow of that spirit in us is these nine fruit. So it's created by the spirit, consistent in the spirit, preserved by the spirit. So we maintain that unity by the spirit and this unity cost everything again in Ephesians 2 we're going to go back to verse 13 and 14 but now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ he died on our behalf for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Ephesians two sixteen goes on to say, and my reconciles both to God in one body through the cross. This is the cost of that unity. Himself, Christ Himself, is the cost of that unity. Therefore, we maintain it. So walk in a manner worthy of your calling by maintaining the unity of the Spirit in love. And Paul goes on to verse four through six to list, once again, reminders of what our unity is built on. There's one body, one spirit, just as you recall, to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. One. Feel the oneness. There, That's the basis of our unity. See, Paul is keenly aware of of the very temperaments, the racial diversity, even the diverse social backgrounds in his readers back then and even here today. We all have different upbringings, different backgrounds, different experiences. We look, think, talk differently. But here... Paul wants you to be even more aware of the spiritual realities that now unites us and that completely transcends any differences, any barriers, any obstacles. We are one. In Christ, we are one, saints. All now have equal shares in the privileges of grace. We are one. Therefore, maintain that oneness. And then in verse 7, Paul goes on to say, but grace was given to each one of us. So in that oneness, there's amazing diversity. Not uniformity, not act the same, talk the same. Diversity in the oneness. Diversity through which this oneness will be experienced and displayed to the world. To each of us is given a gift according to the measure of Christ's gift. Endless varieties of gifts. And these gifts are for the benefit of all. John Calvin says this. You may have heard of him. No member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfection as to be able, without the assistance of others, to supply his own necessities. No one is an island in the church. We are equipped to serve each other. He goes on, verse 8: Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Paul, Paul's quoting Psalm 68 here. Um, and he's quoting Psalm 68 to, to show the parallel. That in Psalm 68, um, starting in verse 18, uh, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God made to all there. So you can kind of hear the similarities, but wait a second. He says he received gifts in Psalms, but he gave gifts in Ephesians. What is that? And the best picture I could think of um, is related to Lord of the Rings. Has anybody seen Lord of the Rings? Yeah, excellent. So in Lord of the Rings, there's always battles, there's always folks winning and losing, and preparation for that, and the whole storyline. I probably just—it's not just we win, let's go home. It's a we win, take their stuff, and go home. So Psalm 68 is talking about that victory that Christ had, that God had, with the law. God won over his enemies and gave the law to Moses. So similarly, Paul is saying here that God won, Christ won, and he took the spoils. He took, um, he took the spoils in order to give to his body. He doesn't just take stuff for himself. He takes to give. This is our king, a gracious king, a king that gives that gives gifts. So Psalm 68 talks about the victory that God had through Moses. And Paul is saying here that victory continues in Christ by the giving of gifts to his people. And he goes on in verse 9. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also Ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. On the third day, he rose. Forty days later, he ascended on high. Our king is alive and reigning. So how... How do these gifts play a part in the maintaining of the unity? That's another, another good question. Thank you for asking. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He gave leaders, foundational leaders, and ongoing leaders to the church, his body, Christians, us, to equip all Christians Let's take a quick look at that. So the apostles and prophets, it's not the first time we hear the, those terms in Ephesians. Um, Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 says, you are fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being himself the cornerstone. So Christ is the cornerstone, foundationally, apostles and prophets, So the reason they're foundational is because they have been recipients of the unique authoritative revelation that hasn't been given before. Apostles' firsthand um, access to Christ. They have seen and it's been revealed to them the truth of who Christ is. And on top of that foundation, what do you do with that? Well, you herald it, evangelists, and you herald it to non believers to gather churches, and, she- and, and those uh, churches have shepherds, pastors is another word for that, that teach them. So, apostles, prophets, foundations of the church, we herald it. Christ has done these things. This is who we are in Christ. And the shepherds and teachers add depth to that. Teaching is the explanation of the realities that are implied in evangelizing. I mean, just think about the truths in the first three chapters of Ephesians. We, we, we just talked about it in the recap, but if, like, categorically speaking, we talked about election, predestination, adoption, redemption, sealing of the Holy Spirit, God making us alive through new birth, becoming a part of the people of Israel. Those are deeds. So we preach of And we need to understand the depth of those things. So we preach up here, not to entertain, not to just say, do better, or you're doing great. We preach to shake up the world of a new reality. This is who we are. This is how we ought to live. These are the truths that allows us to stay and believe when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope, and stay unshakable foundation teaching the depth of these truths do something. They're doing something. And what they're doing is they are equipping verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Equip the saints. Equipping doesn't start with a blank slate. It doesn't start with Step one, because just go back to verse seven. Grace was given to each one of us. We all have gifts. We all have unique giftings, as unique as our fingerprints. So, what is that? What is equipping? There's a positive and a negative way to think about this. So, positively speaking, it means to complete to provide what is needed, to provide what is missing, what the skills or knowledge or motivation. So we equip, complete. Negatively speaking, that word equip um, was used to, to describe mending of, of fishing nets, right? To, to put together what's been broken. So to equip can also mean to mend what is broken. And we do live in a broken world. So we equip to complete, amend what is broken. For what? For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The work of ministry. So this is another word that I wanted to make sure I understood and want to make sure that we understand this. Because ministry sometimes is attached to um, professionals or leaders or folks who have it all together, so they do ministry, and I want to just debunk that right now, and the way I'm going to do that is by introducing the Greek word again, this is two times today, I do apologize, but I think it's important, right, we'll see here the connection of, of what ministry is, so this Greek word ministry is diaconias, the work of diaconias for building up the body of Christ, we see the same word, the same root, in First Corinthians 12, verses four through six. Now there are a varieties of gifts. There it is, but the same spirit, unity. And there are varieties of diaconion service, varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. First Peter, chapter four, verse 10. Peter says this, as each has received a gift, again, we each have received a gift. Use it to diaconuntes, to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Use it to minister to one another. So ministry is of enormous variety. We don't limit ourselves to just the 12 or so that is listed in the New Testament. As if that's the only thing Christians can do. Ministry, ministers, and serving means live for others. That's what a minister does. That's what ministry is. Serving others. Reckoning others as people to be served, not people to be used. And Jesus set the pattern, right? To kind of account of um, Jesus' ministry, chapter 10, verse 45, he says this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, diakonithene. I practiced that all morning. I didn't get that. But you get it. It's diakonias, it's there's a root. Came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ministry is serving. Ministry is seeing others as people to serve, not people to be used. Jesus came to do just that. Not to be ministered to, but to minister. So, the purpose of Christ giving gifts is that every member, every person of the body of Christ would by love and truth stop being thrown around, right? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, it's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, let me stop right there, because the word here is attain. And like you, I was like, wait, I thought we were to maintain the unity. Why are we attaining? What are we attaining? We're, doing so- we're pursuing something, right? Well, specifically, what we're pursuing here is the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So what does that mean? All right, let's start with unity of the knowledge. Unity of truth, understood. Doctrine, common objective truth, believed. And unity of the faith is that unity embraced. Truth, embraced. And here's what I mean by that. Imagine if you all had the exact same understanding of who Christ is. Perfect doctrine. But some of us loved him and some of us didn't. Some of us embraced him and some of us didn't. Some of us are moved by these doctrines and some of us weren't. That's not the goal. So that, we all love the truth. Now turn that around. Imagine if we all had the exact same faith, same enthusiasm, same love of Christ, but we had wildly different views of who Christ is. That's problematic. So Paul's urging us to attain, to pursue the unity of faith and the knowledge. Common knowledge embraced by all. Unity in that. So what is all this doing? I understand that the 16 verses that we just read is kind of all over the place. just parentheticals here and there. And, um, but I would summarize it like this. Right. I will summarize it as maintain and attain unity by love by ministering to each other with the gifts of Christ. That's what I believe is the main point of Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Maintain and attain unity by love by ministering to each other with the gifts of Christ. That's what all this is doing All the doctrine, all the, all the things that we have talked about in Ephesians thus far, it's what it's doing. Maintain and attain unity. Now let's consider the implications of this. What does it mean to maintain and attain, Paul? You wrote this a long time ago, but what does that mean to us today? Because we can hear this and think to ourselves, well, Paul had no idea that this certain individual would always provoke me in insensitive jokes or oblivious insults. He didn't know that. Or he didn't know that I would have to listen to a life group member carry the discussion down the deepest of rabbit holes. That's me, sorry life group, I do that a lot. He also didn't know that there's like really weird people that I think is kind of a struggle to make small talk with. He also doesn't know about the, the different spheres, spheres of life i just take up all my time. I'm busy. I can't maintain and attain unity. And actually, these fears are actually pretty comfortable because it doesn't require the full me. The temptations to divide from one another, even in the church, is great in number. We may perhaps be so grieved by brothers and sisters that unity will come only at the cost of painful conversations Humbling confessions, extended conflict resolution, daily patience, daily gentleness, daily maintaining, daily attaining. That's the everyday life of God's church. Because when we think about it, when there's tension or an obstacle in community, there's one of two paths. One hand, We can run from the realities of our church body, clinging to a vision of what community should be. Man, if only they would do this, or said this. If only we. But if we do, if we go down this path, we fall into a trap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes it this way. He calls it the destroyers of community. He says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Sometimes, the destroyers of community are pretty obvious. They're the agitators, the complainers, the fault finders, the ones who always try to share how they would do things differently if they were in charge. But more often than not, the destruction is a lot more subtle. We become passive rather than actively stop trying so hard. We neglect the uncomfortable conversations. We neglect and leave other sin unaddressed and our own concerns unmentioned. Our relationships begin to look a lot more formal than familial. Instead of patiently bearing with one another, we nurse grievances we replay offenses. You've ever had that conversation in your head that you always win. That distance ourselves from others. We don't need to burn bridges to weaken the unity of God's church. We just need to quietly withdraw with our arms crossed. Some destroy with fire and some destroy with ice. But both can leave a community in ruins. That's one path. The other is the one we just saw in Ephesians 4. A path that is far narrower, a path that is far more burdensome than the path I just mentioned. But hear me, church, it is far more beautiful. If we are willing to enter into these truths of Ephesians 4 fully, Allowing it to clear away any unbiblical community ideal, this perfect picture of what we think community should be, we may gain something on the other side of that that we wouldn't trade for the world. We won't escape the need for patience. Of course not. We won't escape or find that others' quirks are no longer odd. We won't find that unity comes easy. No, but what we will find is a deeper fellowship and a closer conformity with the one whose patience is perfect, whose shoulders bore the burdens of the world and whose zeal for unity brought him from heaven to earth and from earth to the cross. As long as we value anything else, including this perfect picture of community over Christ, we will unintentionally work to destroy whatever community we think we're in but if we value christ likeness be more like christ even our ideal dreams of community if we value christ over that then every insult every peculiarity every conflict every sin will become an opportunity to become more like Christ. Only then will God's children rise into maturity. Only then will the body grow strong. Only then will the bride of Christ become brilliant because only then will this community look more like Jesus. So church, maintain and attain unity by love. And weekly, we gather, our community gathers, united, in love, around one table. Brothers and sisters, we draw near to the Lord's table to celebrate the communion of the body and communion of the blood of Christ. We're grateful to remember that Jesus Christ instituted this ordinance as a bond of our union with him and with each other as members of his body so we give thanks to god the father that our savior jesus christ before he suffered gave us this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again at his last supper the lord jesus took bread and we had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, we proclaim our faith as signed and sealed in this sacrament. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Let us pray.